0: First Corinthians chapter fifteen, and we're going to pick up in verse thirty-five. As this is our fourth week in this book, talking about the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? Why is the resurrection so important? You see, the Greek culture in in Corinth, they did not believe in the teaching of a bodily resurrection. Now, they thought that that was nonsense to say that somebody would bodily resurrect. That is nonsense. They were filled with philosophy, with Greek wisdom of the world, with their own teachings and their own now way and style of living. And they said, there's no way that there is a physical and there is a bodily resurrection. Well, Paul here comes to talk to the church of Corinth and talk to them about how important the doctrine of the resurrection is and why it matters. You know, the resurrection affects your future destiny. That Jesus rose from the dead... Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but His now, the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead guarantees that me and you will also rise after we die. Well, isn't this chapter so filled with hope? I want you to know that there's no other chapter in the Bible there's no other place in the Bible where we see more about the resurrection about the doctrine and the teaching of the resurrection than in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 there's nowhere else where you can find the doctrine of the resurrection more times mentioned than here in 1st Corinthians chapter 15 but you know what he does now in 1st Corinthians chapter 15 He forces us to make a decision about the way that you're going to choose to live your life based off the resurrection. You see, now that you know the truth about the resurrection, you have now a decision to make. You have a decision to make. And He forces us to make that decision about how you're going to choose to live your life based off of the truth of the resurrection. He's told us already, you are saved from sin. God saved you from sin. He saved us from sin, but He saved you for God. See, we were saved from something, and we were saved for something else. We were saved from sin, and we were saved for God. And now, because we were saved from our sin, now because we're saved for God, we must live. And I'll tell you this. I want you to know, church. We must live. And He tells us, last week we studied it, in this chapter, we must live with a sense of accountability with a sense of accountability that one day we will see God face to face. Because of the resurrection, we must live with a sense of accountability that we will see God one day face to face. And because of that, we can focus on living for eternity. What is your focus today based off the resurrection? Is your focus based off the fact that you're living for today? Or are you living for what truly matters and for eternity? You see, we see a few things taking place in 1 Corinthians 15. In the first 11 verses, I'm going to give you why he talks about the resurrection and break down that chapter as we go in today to the main, now, portion and verses that we're going to read. But from verses 1 through 11, if you like taking notes and writing these things down, he gives us the evidence of the bodily resurrection. Number one, the evidence of the bodily resurrection from verses 1 through 11. You know what the evidence was? It was the body of Jesus. Because the apostles saw the body of Christ, now we know that the resurrection is true, and the bodily resurrection exists. Number one, the evidence of the bodily resurrection. The body will resurrect. We know it because we saw Jesus. The apostles give us an account of it. There is an evidence. There are facts now. Now number two is the importance of the resurrection. From verses 12 to verses 19, he tells us why the resurrection is important. The importance of the resurrection. If Christ did not rise, then we don't rise at all either. And if Christ did not rise, the gospel is empty. I'll tell you, this is all empty. The gospel is empty and we're still living in our sins. You see why the resurrection is so important? Because if it wasn't for the resurrection, me and you would still be living in bondage to our sin. But then he gives us number three in this chapter. The sequence of the resurrection. So not only does He give us the evidence, not only does He give us the importance, but then He gives us the sequence of the resurrection. What is the sequence? That first Christ rose, and the rest will then follow. He tells us that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, that He is the forerunner, that He leads us when it comes to the resurrection. He sets the pace that He rose so that we would rise again from verses 20 to 28. But then He tells us, the value of the resurrection you know what the value is in the resurrection that we get to become the form that god originally intended us to be you see since adam sinned in the garden in the garden of eden when sin entered the garden and entered the world now we were then now not in the form that god originally intended us to be in And the value of the resurrection is that we get to go in that form that God originally intended us for us to be fully perfected human beings in heaven, right? To fully express the glory and the image of God and be more like Him. You see, we are a reflection of the image of God right now, but we are an imperfect reflection of the image of God. When we get to heaven, we get to be fully perfected as human beings and be a perfect reflection of the image of God from verses 28 to verse 34. And today we talk about how the resurrection transforms us, and particularly to our bodies. What happens to our bodies? Today it looks like our entire world and culture is so focused on the body, the look, the appearance. Right? I want my body to look a certain way. We have good news. Our bodies will change. <laughs> and God is going to give us a new body. You know what kind of body he's going to give us? A glorious body because the resurrection matters. Because the resurrection matters, right? And he goes on in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to talk about what happens to your body when it comes to the resurrection. I think that this is something that's interesting to all of us. What happens to your body during the resurrection? If the resurrection is real, then does my body, does it disintegrate? Do I get a completely new, different body? Is this the body that I use? What happens to your body if now we talk about the resurrection? There was a man that took his family now to um, a vacation. And he took his family out to vacation to Jerusalem and he was exploring all of Jerusalem and Israel. But then he took his very difficult to deal with mother-in-law. Now, I love my mother-in-law, she's right here, has nothing to do with her. <laughs> but he took his very, very difficult to deal with mother-in-law. In that trip, in his vacation, his mother-in-law passed. And she died, and now they're now mourning his, his family and his wife, and, and this man is mourning. However, he goes now to the mortuary and the the head officer in the mortuary tells him, well, sir, I'm sorry for your loss, but your mother-in-law is here and we can do one of two things. We can either now ship her back now to the United States and, you know, that's going to cost you this amount of money, right? Or we can do a funeral here in Israel, which is going to cost you 10 times more as it would be to be able to ship her back. And he says, you know what, let's do it here and let's do it back in over in the United States. He said, no, no, sir, I I want you to understand that that it might be easier with with shipping and all that to, to maybe even do it here, even though it costs a little bit more. And he says, no, I heard about a man that was buried here in Jerusalem and rose again, and I don't want to take that chance. No, the resurrection is real. Some of you guys are just nodding, giving that elbow to your wife. No, please don't do that. It has nothing to do with that. The resurrection is real. And you get a, finally, you get a glorious body. Verse 35, it says, But some will say, How are the dead raised up? How are they raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is it not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, will, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps sweet or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds, and there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another." There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, and it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is sown in the natural body, but it is raised in the spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is also a spiritual body. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank You, God, because You're teaching us through Your Word that there is life after death. That there is life after death. And I pray through this message, Lord, not only did we understand that concept that there is life after death, but that, that we would focus on living for eternity. That our focus would not become distracted because of earthly things. That we would not be distracted because of the things that pass us by every single day, God. But that you would teach us, God, that you have a purpose and that you have a plan after we die. And that is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Together we said, amen. It says here, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? How is it that the dead are raised up? How is it, Paul, that you're teaching this strange doctrine that your body will come back to life? That is just nonsense. How is it that you have a celestial body? That makes no sense, right? And with what body do they come? Or what is it? What kind of body have you seen someone come with that has actually resurrected? Now he gives us an illustration and he goes back because they were in a very agricultural now time where people knew about planting and about sowing and about reaping and about harvest. So he says, I'm going to give you an example that you might understand right now. And it's going to start off with agriculture and with a seed. And he says this now in verse 36. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. If you take a little seed now and you plant it or you sow it now, it, nothing really comes from it or of it. There is no fruit. There is no birth. There is no growth. There is it, nothing happens to it unless that seed dies. You see how he's going here? He's trying to paint this picture for them. It's only now a seed. It is until that seed dies in the ground that now something gives birth from it. And he's going to teach them this. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be. But the mere grain, perhaps the wheat or some other grain. When you go and you're gonna sow up, when you're gonna now plant, when it's sow into the ground, you don't go and you sow or you plant or you bury now an entire plant or the body of what you want to come out. All you simply do is sow the little seed. You don't go and sow an apple, you don't go and sow all these avocados, you don't go and sow a different type of plant and you bury under a tree. No, you just go and you do the wheat or you do the specific seed, right? But God gives it a body as He pleases. But God gives that wheat, that grain. He gives it a body. And and check this out, church, in verse 38. As who pleases? As God pleases and to each seed its own body. God will give a body from that seed as it pleases God. Now, why does he say as God pleases? Because just like it is a work of God to bring life, from a seed, it's also a work of God to resurrect the dead. Just like it's a work of God. There's nothing that we can do to produce life from a seed other than the work that God now produced or made up for us through all the genetic buildup and, and the biology and all of that to give life from that seed. There's nothing that we can do to control that. Only God can. And just like that, God controls And puts together and manifests now the resurrection. And it tells us in verse 38 that God gives each plant a different body just as He pleases. The New Living Translation reads this verse then God gives it a new body, that little seed, as He wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Verse 39 All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals another flesh of fish, and another of birds. Now he's giving us different types of bodies and flesh that God has created. Why does he do this? Because he's speaking about the uniqueness of the bodies and of the flesh and of the creatures that God has created to get them to understand that God has specifically designed everyone uniquely different and all flesh and all creation. He goes on, there are celestial bodies and there are terrestrial bodies. I want you to understand, Corinth. There are some bodies meant for earth, but there are other bodies that are meant for heaven. And now he's going to name them and all the uniqueness and all the types of creation that God has ordained. And he says, but the glory of the celestial is one. The appearance of the glory of the one that is in heaven is one. And the glory of the terrestrial is another. They're different bodies. It's not the same one, right? We can praise God for that, right? We look forward to God being in his presence face to face one day and saying, Lord, thank you because the celestial body, it's much stronger. There is no pain. There is no sorrow. There's so much hope in the celestial body versus the one that you've given me today. Right? How many of us maybe today we walk and, and we ache and, and maybe our back or our knees or whatever it would be, the headaches or the sickness, to understand that all that pain, all that sorrow is going to be wiped away because we're going to have a perfect glorified body one day in heaven. What a, what a beautiful promise that this body that we have is just a shell and God is going to give us a new brand new body that is fully perfect in heaven before him as we see him face to face. Now, verse 41, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and one from for one star differs from another star in glory. Now, he's given us a very quick comparison that even in creation, even not two stars alike are alike. There's nothing that is identically alike. God has distinguished everything one from another. If you look at the galaxies and start to study the solar system, it'll just blow you away to see the galaxy so much of creation, so much of outer space, that we haven't even discovered, that is undiscovered, under the hand of God, all the solar systems, all the galaxies, and to think that not one of them is alike from, is, uh, is alike from the other, because God has made them uniquely different. Do not we have, do, do, don't we have a creative God that has instilled in us also creativity? This is so amazing that he's given us this distinction. Why is this so important for us to know? So that we know that we also will have a different body, and the celestial bodies are not all the same. That's why it is believed from this scripture that when we get to heaven, we're going to recognize who we are because we're going to be different from one another in our glorified bodies. And you're going to show up, you're going to be like, man, it's about time, Mark. You? you got a little taller up here. <laughs> And you're going to look at your brother and your sister and you're going to be like, man, praise God that they made it. You're going to be so rejoicing with your family members that you talk to them about Christ. And you're going to recognize them as God has given us all different bodies. But what are the bodies that he's given us? Let's go ahead and continue to read here. So verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead just like that is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. The body is now Put in the ground, buried in decay. Corruption is a word used not for a moral corruption, not for a spiritual corruption, but for a physical corruption. Our bodies, like a shell, are buried and sown in decay. But they're raised in something that will not ever decay. Isn't that amazing? That our bodies are constantly decaying. And there is one thing that none of us here can ever evade from. No matter how elusive we are, we cannot escape from one thing that we will die in this body. (laughs) But know also, if we've chosen the way of Jesus, we will live. And that is so amazing. You're going to be sown in a body of decay. You're going to be now buried in a body that's full of decay, but also raised up. That word is awesome. We will be buried when we die, but we will be raised up in incorruption. Incorruption means to live forever. To live forever. It is sown, this body is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in dishonor, but is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but is raised in power. You see how, how vulnerable, how weak we are in our bodies today, in our flesh today? And Paul tells us here, and he's talking to the church, that the body that we are, are so it's sown in dishonor and decay, in sin. It's complete, always in the process of, of not dying, but it is raised up in glory. It goes from weakness and is raised up in power. It goes from brokenness and is raised up in strength. Why? Because the body that we are going to have is a body that's not going to experience any more pain. Isn't that awesome that the body that you're going to experience is going to go from imperfection to perfection in God? We're all imperfect right now. This is not the state that God originally intended us to be in. We're going to go from imperfection to perfection. We're going to go from from sorrow to strength. From pain to promise because of the body that God's going to give us. And we find so much hope in this. I love how in Revelation chapter 21 verse 4, if you like taking notes, it says that now when we are in heaven, we're gonna find ourselves the church before God. And it says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You've come today maybe in pain. God will wipe every tear in heaven from their eyes. And there shall be no more death. Can we praise God for that? There'll be no more death. There's gonna be no more sorrow. There's gonna be no more crying. (laughs) Right? There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. That all comes with the package of the new glorious body that God has given you. Oh, well, Lord, look at the imperfect body that you've given me, Lord. No, praise God. Because even then, in that weakness, you can praise Him. You can serve Him. And knowing that you have the promise that there's going to be no more death, no more sorrow, He's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes and there will be all the former things have been fully passed away. Now, verse 44... It is sown as a natural body, our body today. But it's going to be raised as a spiritual body. The body that we have today is a very natural body. It's a body that is fully consumed in the flesh. But it's going to be raised as a spiritual body, a different type of body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body, Corinth, He wants us to understand this now. You have to ask yourself, why is it that it's important for me to know this? Because people ask, what happens after you die? And with your coworker, your family member, your relative, when those people that are going to that memorial and funeral service, when they're weeping and they're crying and they're mourning and they're having that service and they're looking at the person in the casket and it's just a shell of their body, you have the answer, you can take them to 1 Corinthians 15 and know, hey, that is just a shell, God's going to raise that person up with a new body, right? That person's soul is in the presence of God now, and you can teach them the doctrine of the resurrection. This is what happens after you die. Right? And he tells us there is a spiritual body and there is a natural body. Right? And now he tells us in verse 45, As it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. Now the first man Adam was a living being. Why does he tell us this? Because he just finished telling us that both exist. And if both exist, he's going to go back to the origination of life. In the Garden of Eden, in verse 45, where he says here, The first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. The first man was Adam in the Garden. But the last Adam, he's talking about Christ, was able to give us a life-giving spirit. Adam, now the first man in creation, gave us the flesh. We inherited this body because of Adam, because of Eve. This is the body that they gave us. But the last Adam, or Christ, is giving us a life-giving spirit. Isn't it amazing that the body that God gave us is life-giving? It's life-giving. It never decays. It's always giving, producing life. That that, that word right there, life-giving spirit, the word spirit, is a Greek word called pneuma. It's the spirit and the breath of God. Pneuma. To think that God is going to give you a uh, life-giving spirit. A body that never decays. Now, why is he saying this? Because if God is able to create everything, the stars, the moon, the flesh, our body, would it, would it be a problem for him to resurrect the dead? Absolutely not. And why is it that he gave him the analogy and the illustration of this agriculture type of example? Because just because you don't now understand the process of now harvest doesn't mean that you cannot believe in it it's like saying i don't believe in the harvest just because i don't understand the process you might not understand the process but there is no doubt that if you sow a seed and you water it and you plant it and it gets sun guess what's going to happen you're going to get some harvest and you might not understand that process but is not give you now the full ability to not under- believe in that harvest Now he said i want you to believe in that harvest Even if you don't understand the process. Because the process in the plan, and the perfect plan of God, He will resurrect the dead. Now in verse 46, He goes on and He tells us, after we are going to be giving a life-giving spirit, a body that reflects the spirit. That's amazing. A body that reflects a spirit. We will be more fully alive than we've ever been in that body. A body that reflects the spirit. And it says, however, verse 46, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward is the spiritual. The birth order is first you get that fleshly body, then you get the spiritual afterward. The first man was of the earth, made out of dust. Adam was made out of dust. And the second man, notice that it is capitalized, the M, giving deity or giving significance, that he's talking about Christ now, is the Lord from heaven. The first man, Adam, he was now born of the flesh. But Christ now gives us the form that comes from heaven. And as it was, verse 48, as was the man of the dust, so also those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Do you notice how today we resemble now the earthly man? We resemble now the earthly birth. But one day we will resemble now the spiritual full body birth through Christ. Verse 48 tells us, we will come into full resemblance now of the heavenly man, which is Christ. Verse 49, and as we have been born the image of the man of dust, just like we are in the image of Adam, today we have the image, we shall also have or bear the image. I want you to underline that in your Bible. Bear the image of the heavenly man. You see, God created us in His image. But we went out of that perfect image that he had created and we went into sin and we have become an imperfect reflection now of God. He's going to give us a perfect body one day and in that body we will bear the perfect image and the glory of the heavenly man. You know what that means? That means that me and you are going to have a body that is not dominated by the flesh. Our bodies right now are dominated by the flesh. Whatever the flesh wants. That the body wants to do it. if Whatever it craves, the body wants to do it. But we are going to have a body that is de- not dominated by the flesh, but a body that is fully dominated by the Spirit. That's why it's called a life-giving Spirit. A life-giving Spirit. Because that's the type of body that we will have. One that resembles a life-giving Spirit, right? And in that body will reflect or bear the full resemblance of God. You see, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John tells us this. He says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now talking about what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. We fully understand we were going to be just like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. We're going to get a clear picture of who God is face to face. And we're going to be just like Him. We're going to have the form that lets us look at God face to face. Do you remember in the Old Testament? Where now Moses said, Lord, I want to see you. And God said, no, no man's going to see me unless they see me and they die. You see, in this form, we cannot see God unless we die. But He's going to give us a form where we can see Him fully phase to phase now from verse now 50 to verse 58 we this is a beautiful time because we reach our final victory now now we talked about the body now there is a final victory now not you don't you love when you start to see the finish line in a race when you start to come now to the championship rounds of a competition or of a fight now if you like that <laughs> Once you start coming to the last innings now of the World Series now, and your team is there. Once you come to the last quarter of that game. Now here, what Paul is going to teach us and talk to us is what happens. What happens to us and how does our finish line look like? You see, it's important to know how the finish line looks like so that therefore you know where you're going. You know how the end times or end times eschatology takes place. You see, what we're studying is the resurrection and it's the doctrine of eschatology as well. Speaking about end times because now he talks about the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. Now I'll tell you, the rapture can happen at any given moment. The rapture can happen before this message ends. We can all be raptured and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And from verse 50 to 58, he gives us four major points. I want to give them to you because I want you to become a student of the Bible. He gives us four major points from 50 to 58. And the first point is, we see the great transformation in the victory or in the rapture. The great transformation throughout the rapture. That's when we get our bodies, some of us, if we are that generation in which the Lord comes. The great transformation. But number two, He gives us the great triumph from verse 50. To 58, the great transformation and then the great triumph. Verse number three, he gives us the great thanksgiving from verses 50 to 58. And finally, we get a great, a great therefore, <laughs> a great therefore, a great transformation, a great triumph, a great thanksgiving, and a great therefore. Well, let's find out and let's unpack what these now mean. Verse 50, now this I say, the whole point of what I'm saying, he says here, Brethren, that flesh and blood, that this body cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption or a life of decay can inherit something that is incorruptible or a perfect place that is not filled with sin. This body that is filled with sin, this imperfect decaying body, cannot inherit a very perfect place like heaven. And that's exactly what he's telling us in verse 50. That we're going to have a transformation. We must have a transformation. Now it tells us 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now mystery, it's not like something dark as we see. When we think mystery, we think, all right, this this is a dark thing. This is scary. No, a mystery is something that is untold, that was not told yet, that was not learned. And he is going to give them, he's going to do this. He's going to pull back now the curtain. And he's going to give us now a behind the scenes look of what has never been told or learned of. Of what happens during the rapture that's amazing I mean this gets us to the edge of our seats when learning about the rapture behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed I heard about a church that they were building their church and they started to build the nursery of the children's ministry and then top of the nursery of the children's ministry they put this verse we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed (laughs) If you you serve in the children's ministry, that's funny to you. If you don't, then you better start volunteering in the children's ministry. We shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. Now it says, behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. What does this mean, this unknown mystery? It says not all of us will die. Some of us are just going to be changed. So there's a generation the Bible talks about is the last generation that that God will use. I mean, I'll tell you, it can be this generation. The way we look at the events that are taking place in our life, in our world, and we compare them to prophecy and to revelation and to the unveiling that God has given us through his word is that we can so believe that God is coming back in our generation unless he has mercy and grace and so chooses to hold back and come back at a different generation. Now, Paul says, God spoke about a generation in which he would rapture. There is a generation. Not all of us will die. Some will will be changed. Now, that word changed is a word that means now metatauta or metamorphosis. We're all going to be changed. Not all will die. Some will be instantly changed. That's amazing. Some instantly will be changed. Metamorphosis. To be transformed. That's amazing. See, none of us, some of us, will not die. If God chooses to come, some of us will be instantly now transformed. And what does He tell us how we'll be instantly transformed? Now, in a moment. In a moment. In a twinkling of an eye. In a twinkling of an eye. It doesn't say in a blink of an eye. A lot of us like to say in a blink of an eye. Now, you're slowing down God. God is not that slow. God is much faster than a blink. It says a twinkling of an eye. That is is shorter than a blink, that is, that is uh, shorter than any nanosecond that you can possibly now speak about. It's a twinkling of an eye. Boom, transform. You are gone, you're out of here. Amen. Isn't that amazing? In a twinkling of an eye. Now what does it say here? The la- at the last trumpet, comma. At the last trumpet, you're going to hear that trumpet sound and boom, I'm out of here. Just think about it. Are you ready to hear that trumpet sound when Jesus is coming soon? Man, you hear that trumpet sound? You raise your arm, say, I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go, God. I don't want to be left behind. Have you ever been left behind? Has your right ever left you behind? You know, has somebody ever said, you know, I'm going to pick you up at this time, but you weren't ready and they left you. You see, our time is of the essence. Time is running out. And it says in the twinkling of an eye. For the last trumpet will sound, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised." Here will be raised incorruptible and they will be changed. And first is going to be the dead. The dead will be raised from their decaying bodies. The Bible talks about that the graves are going to open up and the dead bodies will be raised up in glory in the moment in that last. Now trumpet for the corruptible must put on incorruption. That corruptible body must put on something that it is incorruptible. It is perfect. It is a perfect body that God has given us. And this mortal must put on immortality. I was talking to a friend one time at work. And and I was telling Matt, isn't Easter so, so just such filled with promise and hope? And and he gave me an answer. He was like, it just reminds me that we're immortal. (laughs) It's so funny. It just reminds me that we're immortal, the resurrection. Why? Because God is going to give us a body one day. That no matter what happens in this time, we're going to live. And it says that the graves will be opened up. We're gonna read that verse in just a moment. But in the last trumpet sound, the dead will be rise and the incorruptible shall be changed to incorrupted. You think about how that looks. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Something that is immortal, it means that it's never going to die. That you're going to put a heavenly body that, that you, you will not be in heaven, in heaven with an earthly flesh or with an earthly form. You're going to put on now that earthly body at that last trumpet sound. You see, it's important that we study what that means, the last trumpet. Ironside, a famous now Bible commentator, said this, that the last trumpet was a figure of speech. It was a figure of speech. When you talk about the last trumpet that came from a Roman military, now officer, the last trumpet... And and the last trumpet was given by the Roman military officer when they broke camp. So he wanted to give him a picture of what that looks like, that last trumpet. Because the first trumpet in the Roman military camp, the first trumpet means strike the tents and prepare to leave. Strike the tents, prepare to leave. The second trumpet meant fall in line. But the last trumpet means march away. Isn't that interesting that... The last trumpet describes the Christian's marching orders of the rapture of the church. March away now, the last trumpet sound. You see, that is the last trumpet that we are waiting for. In First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 15 tells us this, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means perceive those who are asleep. First the dead will rise, the graves will open, they will rise. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. That's amazing. Think about that, how that looks. That's better than any movie you've ever seen. The voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The graves will open, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive will remain and we shall be caught up. That word caught up, it's harpazio, change, raptured, taken by force, by the power of God. He's going to take you no matter what you're doing. Caught up, taken by force, harpazio, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall be with the Lord now. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you find comfort today in that? Not only that God's going to give you a new body, but the Lord's going to rapture and take you by force one day. To meet Him face to face. And that is now... The great transformation? What about the great triumph? Verse 54 tells us. So when the corruptible has put on the incorruption. So when we get to heaven. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption. And the mortal has put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying. Now we're in heaven. Now this saying is going to be fulfilled. Now the scripture is going to be fulfilled. Because we're going to be in that new body. If we're raptured or the, if we are dead in the grave, right, our bodies are in the grave, the graves will be open. We will ascend. We will be taken by force. But when this happens now, the scriptures shall be brought to pass. The scriptures shall be fulfilled. The saying that is written, Death shall be swallowed up in victory. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8 predicts that death is going to be swallowed up in victory, that death no longer would have power over our lives. Not only sin will not have power over our lives, but death will have power over our lives as well. We don't have to be scared of death, because we're not scared of sin anymore. You see, the only reason to be scared of death is if you live in sin. But if you don't live in sin, there's no reason to fear death. Because you have the promise of God. And He's going to tell us that. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That's why me and you, we're living and we're fighting and we're going and we're pressing on from the position of victory. Death, where is your victory? Look what he says now, verse 55. Oh, death. He didn't say death. He says, oh, death. He's taunting death now. Now he's giving like a little taunt. Hey, death. Death, you think I'm scared of you, death? Death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Hell, you think you have victory over me? Death, do you think you have a victory over me? you have no more victory? Where is your sting? Where is now your victory? What is a sting? It's something that hurts, something that you're scared of, right? It's something that you, you, you don't want to be a part of. Death, where is your sting? What is the sting of death now? It is sin, we're going to see. But sin no longer has power over us. That means that death no longer has a stinger <laughs> have you ever been scared of a bee i'll tell you i have you know last week i was stung by a bee <laughs> and i was i was stung by a bee i'll tell you i was limping that next day my foot was swollen i tell, i couldn't I stop talking about it and i'll tell you if i see a bee i'm, I'm running you know i'm not going to be around that bee because i know what the pain is but guess what happens when that bee stings you it has no more stinger. Are you scared of that dead bee after its, it's sting? No. Hey, what are you going to do to me? You're dead. You have no more stinger. If you knew that bees did not have a stinger, would you run away from them? You'd probably try to collect them. <laughs> now think about death. If you no longer, or death no longer has its stinger, which is sin, are you now scared of death? What are you going to do to me? You don't have your stinger. Your stinger used to be sin, but now I have the victory through Christ Jesus because of the cross of Jesus Christ and because of the tomb and because of the resurrection. What are you going to do to me, death? Amen? Now how am I scared of death now? Death, where's your victory? Where is your sting? He's laughing at death now. Here Paul is looking. Death, I'm laughing at you. Death, where's where's the power that you used to have at me? You used to have power over me, death. You have no more power over me. You know what makes death powerful is sin. Sin is death's finger. It's sin is what makes death powerful. But death has power. I'll tell you, death has power. Death has power against any unforgiven sin. That's exactly why we have to come to the Lord. Because if we're living in unforgiven sin and unrepentant sin, then death has power over us. It is when we say Lord, I don't want you to forgive me of my sins that death no longer has power over us. And if death has power over us, I'll tell you this, death becomes deadly. And I'm talking about eternally deadly. But think about what they're saying. The only weapon that death has against me is sin. But if it's gone because it's been covered and removed and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And no longer am I scared of death because sin now has been forgiven. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. The sting that I used to be scared of when it came to death, when death came around, I used to be so scared. It was because of sin. But now that I'm not living in sin, I'm not scared of death. I live in peace. But it says here now, and the strength of sin, That little stinger, sin, that sucker, right? What is it? It's the law. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the law that we know that we are guilty. What does the law constantly do? You're guilty. You're a sinner. Condemned you. You're imperfect. You're not worthy. You're not enough. But Jesus said, you know what? But I am. But I'm worthy. But I'm perfect. But I'm perfected. And I've taken their place. And I have paid the price for every law that was broken. So that law, that power, that strength that sin had, the Lord said, no, I've overcome that power of that law. Because any law that was broken, I now paid the price for that law. And although they're guilty because of sin, the Lord has paid the price. Now verse 55, 56 to 57, he tells us about the great Thanksgiving in verse 57. We talked about the great now transformation. We talked about the great triumph now. Over death, over over sin, but what about the great Thanksgiving, verse fifty-seven? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Can we praise God for that? I mean, this is an amazing promise right here. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. I mean, you're sitting there listening to victory. I mean, if your team wins, that's not me. I mean, I'll tell you, I was at a sports event recently, and man, when my, 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 my side was winning, I was up there screaming and yelling and jumping because I, I was living in victory. Think about how enthusiastic you can live because you're in victory. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Because, thank you, because you gave me the victory through your Lord Jesus. And that stinger has no power over me. The law, you paid every, every law, every single one I broke. Death, I'm not scared of it. You went to the cross, forgave me my sin, and you went to the resurrection to overcome death now. The New Living Translation says this, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory over what? Over sin, gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the cross, we have victory over sin. Because of the resurrection, we have victory over death. Because of the cross, we have victory over sin. Because of the resurrection, we have victory over death. You see, the law sets the mark that sin Misses every time. But Jesus prayed for every price. Every law that was broken. And because of that. Our resurrection is fixed. It's, fi- it's, not, it's not like we think we're going to be resurrected. No. Our resurrection is. It is guaranteed. And now finally. In verse 58. We have a great therefore. See this verse 58. It's the great therefore. We went from the great transformation. To the great triumph to the great thanksgiving, that we have the victory. But what about the great therefore? Now you know this. What, does that matter to you? Th- does it make you change anything about the way you live today? Should you not now live your life a little different? Therefore. Anytime you see in the Bible, therefore, you have to ask yourself, why is it therefore? <laughs> therefore, now with all that being said, after 57 verses of the resurrection, because death has been defeated, Because you are undefeated in Jesus. That's amazing to be able to think that that's what you you are. You are undefeated in Jesus. Because you're undefeated, because death has been defeated. Now look what He tells you to do now. Beloved, you are loved. Brethren, you are so loved. But because you're loved, you must be steadfast, immovable, abounding. Steadfast, immovable, abounding. Abounding. Lord, thank you because of the resurrection. Thank you because of the rapture. Thank you because you defeated death. Thank you because you forgave me my sin. Thank you because you paid every price for every law that I had broken. I am guilty, but now I'm forgiven. Death now no longer has a stinger. I'm not scared of it. Death, where is your stinger? But because of that, God has called you now, therefore, to be steadfast, immovable, and abounding. We think about what your work should be in the Lord. Should I be involved in ministry? Should I be doing something for God? Should I just lay back and be easy? No Jesus didn't rise from the dead, so you can come to church and sit in, the, in a chair and just leave like nothing matters. That's not why he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead so that you would be busy about his work, not your work. Look what he says: "Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Steadfast means be strong. Be strong now here. Because God doesn't hold sin against you anymore because you've been forgiven. Stand true. Stand your ground. Be strong. Be strong. Today maybe you came in you needed to be reminded to be strong. Maybe you came in you're discouraged or things going through your life or your family or marriage or your kids or at work and something is taking place but you are reminded to be strong. That's what it means to be steadfast. Be immovable. It means be unshakable. Let nothing move you, right? When it comes to your relationship with God. Here. But always abounding, be unshakable and firm, always abounding, be confident. Always abounding. Doesn't say sometimes, doesn't say Sundays, doesn't say Wednesdays, doesn't say, you know, when, when you feel like it. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be diligent. So what is he telling us here? Be strong, be obedient, and be faithful. Maybe today God wants you to leave with the be strong, be obedient, and be faithful. I love what it talks about in the New Living Translation. It says, always be enthusiastic. Always be enthusiastic. Why should he always be enthusiastic now? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. What work? The work of God. Not your work. Sometimes we're, we're so wrapped up. We're doing all these things and we think that it's for God. But it really is for us. Oh, this is a work of the Lord. And we just slap the name of God on there and pretend it's the work of the Lord. No. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, in His work, His work. Be busy about His work and your labor, knowing this, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Make sure it's the work of the Lord, it's not a work of man, number one. And because if it was really a work of the Lord, it's going to be funded by the Lord, it's going to be moved by the Lord, it's going to be pushed by the Lord, and you can know for certain that it's not a waste of time. It's not in vain because it's in the Lord, right? Your labor, that word labor means your blood. Your sweat, your tears, your hard work is not in vain. Sometimes, man, sometimes we, we come to church and we think, man, everything that I'm doing, I see no fruit. Let me tell you this, God is working behind the scenes. Even when you can't see visible fruit, there is invisible character that's being produced. Amen. Your labor is not in vain. What does it tell us? That you work, your work for the day counts for eternity. Your work for the day counts for eternity. Are you choosing to live for just today or for eternity? The Bible tells us that we must one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And all of us must give an account to the things that we have done in the body according to what He has done, whether good or bad. You see, always abounding in the work of the Lord means do it with a good attitude. Knowing how the story ends. Knowing how the story ends. If you read the end of the book, the end of the Bible, the end of the, you know how it ends. And because I know how it ends... I can abound in the work of the Lord. I already know how it ends. (laughs) I can be steadfast. Nothing's going to move me. I know how it ends. I can be unshakable because I know how it ends. Abounding in what? In the work of the Lord. What does this do to us? We have encouragement. We have something to look forward to. You don't have to quit. You don't have to waver. You don't need to change direction. You don't need to fall. You don't need to give up. You need to abound in the work of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10, we're going to end with this as the worship team comes up. It says this, for God is not unjust. God is not, unfa- not unfair to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward His name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. A lot of us are doing a lot of work in ministry and sometimes we think, is it really doing any profit? God does not forget your labor of love. It's been an exhaustive type of labor, blood set and two type of labor. But God doesn't forget that labor that He was shown to His name. He doesn't forget that you woke up early and the sacrifice and the toil and the staying up late and the long drives. God does not forget your labor of love in which you have shown when you minister to other people. But how much labor of love is taking place? God will not forget the labor of love at the resurrection. Why does He tell us this? So that we can find encouragement that what you're doing today, God will remember. In Galatians 6, 9, He says, And let us not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season, in his season, in his timing, not your time. in his season, you will reap if you don't lose heart. You know what? The reason why a lot of people don't reap is because they lose heart before they reap. For it's his season. You want the Lord's harvest in your time. God doesn't provide harvest in your time. God provides harvest in his time. Do not quit. Do not give up. It is in due season. I want you to know that. You've been praying for a while. Don't quit. It's always too soon to quit you know why sometimes we don't see the harvest because we quit before the harvest and the Lord of harvest is ready to give us the harvest do not go weary in doing good because in due time you will reap if you don't lose heart steadfast immovable and abounding can we stand Lord Heavenly Father we thank you God for your word today We thank you, Lord, because you have a pro- we have the promise of the resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for the transformation, Lord, the triumph. The thanksgiving. Therefore, because of that, we can live our lives different. We pray, Lord, that you would let us step out of comfort, God, into commitment. At a compromise into consecration we want to abound in your work Lord one day we will have to answer to God one day we will have to answer to God